Welcome back to another Cory Doctorow podcast. I'm about to leave for Brussels in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be speaking at Competition and Regulation in Disrupted Times, a conference being put on by Charles River Associates about antitrust on March the 31st. And I'm going to be speaking remotely for Philadelphia's Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise conference, where I'm doing a keynote April 19th and 20th. So we had a fun week again. We had a house guest, a little bit of... Uh, well, late-stage COVID, early-stage recovery, maybe normalcy, where our friend Eric Faden, the uh, copy fighter and film professor and all-around good egg, came and stayed at our place overnight on his way to helping his brother drive cross-country. And uh, we just looked at the calendar and realized that if Easter break is coming up, then Passover must be coming up. And I've decided for the second time in my adult life to try and have a Seder. We had one I guess about seven years ago, where I got some leftist Haggadahs and tried to do a backyard event, and it was only so-so. It was pretty fun, but as an atheist, it's very hard for me to strike the right balance. This time around, I've ordered some radical Haggadahs called the Judas, J-E-W-D-A-S, Haggadah, from Pluto Press in the UK. Uh, I've got a bunch of those coming. But, you know, if you have any tips on how to throw an atheist, leftist, anti-imperialist, anti-war... Passover Seder, by all means, get in touch, because I want to make it a good one, but not too ponderous, but definitely right on, and we'll see how it goes. I grew up going to both fairly traditional family Seders and then some reasonably radical ones with organizations like Uchpo and the Workman's Circle, so I'm going to try and air more on the radical side here. Speaking of radical, this week's reading is my latest Locus column, it's a column called Vertically Challenged. And it's about the subject that's really been mostly on my mind, which is monopoly in tech and what it all means. And so, without further ado, from the March issue of Locus Magazine, here is Vertically Challenged. Science fiction has a long-standing love-hate relationship with the tech tycoon. The literature is full of billionaire inventors, sometimes painted as system-bucking heroes, and others as megalomaniacal supervillains. From time to time, we even manage to portray one of these people in a way that hues most closely to reality. Ordinary mediocrities, no better than you and I, whose success comes down to a combination of luck and a willingness to set aside consideration of the needs of others. It is easy to find such people atop our increasingly steep economic period, but it's very hard to find any who'll admit it. There is nothing a successful person hates more than being reminded that meritocracy is a self-serving myth, a circular logic that says, the system puts the best people in charge, and I am in charge, therefore I am the best. But while the powerful remain blissfully insulated from the bursting of the meritocratic delusion, public sentiment is increasingly turning against the ultra-wealthy, and in the most interesting way possible. Today, the commercial tyrant isn't merely seen as a villain, but also as a fool, someone whose greatness is due to an accident of history and a vacancy of morals, not the result of a powerful genius gone awry. It's a distinction with a difference. 
If Facebook is Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg is a once-in-a-millennium genius who did what no other could, then our best hope is to somehow gentle the Zuck, bring him into public service like a caged E.T. that government scientists either bribe or torment into working on behalf of the human race. That's the constitutional monarchy model, the model where we continue to acknowledge the divine right of kings, but bind them to the material plane by draping the king in golden chains of office, whose ends are held by an aristocracy that keeps the monarch from getting too frisky. But if Facebook is Facebook because Zuck got lucky, if he just combined cheap capital with regulatory tolerance for buying out the competition and building a legally impregnable walled garden around his users, then we don't need Zuck or Facebook. There's plenty more where he came from, and all we need to do is withdraw the privileges that regulatory forbearance granted him. That's the Republic model, where we get rid of the king and govern ourselves. That's the direction that regulators are moving in now. Biden's FTC chair, the incredible Lena Kahn, came to prominence as a Yale law student with her paper Amazon's Antitrust Problem, which makes a powerful case against the kind of vertical integration that big tech practices today. Her term in office thus far has been characterized by extraordinary skepticism of growth by merger and vertical integration more generally. As I write this, in late January of 2022, she's just announced that the FTC will seek comment on updated 21st century merger guidelines, and she's in the midst of suing Facebook to break the company up. So let's assume that we're entering a new world, a world where, say, the proposed merger between Microsoft and Blizzard that I woke up to today is blocked by the FTC as nakedly anti-competitive. Even more so, let's assume we're entering a world where the presumption is against vertical integration itself, where the bedrock is that companies must choose whether to be platforms or platform users. In that world, Amazon could offer virtual shelf space to merchants, or it could compete with those merchants by making its own goods, but not both. Apple could have an app store, or it could make apps, but not both. Google could offer space for advertising, or a market for placing ads in advertising spaces, but not both, and so on, for Facebook, Salesforce, Microsoft, and all the other tech platforms that have business customers and compete with those customers. This was once a commonplace of antitrust regulation. It's called structural separation. We once banned banks from owning companies that competed with the companies they loaned money to, and railroads from owning freight companies that competed with the companies whose freight they hauled. At root, structural separation is grounded in the idea that it's nearly impossible to prove cheating or self-preferencing, so we should just eliminate the incentives for it. It's nice to think that a bank manager will determine our creditworthiness based on our individual merits and the intangibles captured in the idea of character— When a bank manager gives a loan to a local business that's fallen on hard times but denies a loan to another business with similar financials, we generally accept the idea that the manager made a judgment call based on familiarity and trust, though sometimes we're suspicious that familiarity and trust is code for racism and bias, of course. But what if the business that the bank manager okays a loan to is owned by the bank, and the business the bank manager turns down is its direct competitor? Sure, the bank has a firewall between its lending arm and its commercial investment arm, but if you were the owner of the business that got screwed by that decision, 
Would you be willing to assume impartiality as you packed up the ruins of your life's work? We don't let lawyers represent both sides of litigation, and we don't let judges hear cases involving their friends and family members. It doesn't matter how much they promise to be impartial. We have an intuitive sense that the losers in any such arrangement would never be able to trust the process's impartiality. Structural separation was an early casualty of the neoliberal era. When Bill Clinton signed the repeal of the 1933 Glass-Steagall Act in 1999, he removed the final barrier to banks competing with the businesses they lent to. It took nine years for this deregulation to give rise to the great financial crisis of 2008. Today, our regulators are once again ready to impose some structural separation on giant tech companies, ordering them to fraction in ways that is supposed to remove the incentive to cheat. I think tech needs structural separation, and that structural separation is the least invasive way of creating fairness and legitimacy. Take Google search ranking. If you search for an address, Google will prominently display a link to Google Maps, as well as other links relevant to that search result, from real estate listings to USGS topographic data. Now, if you were running a competitor to Google Maps, how could you establish, to yourself or to a regulator, that Google's link to its own Google Maps page was there because Google objectively determined that Google Maps was better than your product? How could Google prove that to you or a regulator? We don't have an agreed-upon measurement for the quality of an online Maps result. We're not going to get one. There isn't one. Whether it's Apple showing you its own music player ahead of arrivals in a search in the App Store, or Facebook linking to its own version of an article or video rather than the one on the open web, the process will never feel fair. Companies can play the game, or they can be referees, but they can't play in a game they are also refereeing. A judge can't hear a case involving her mother, and a lawyer can't represent both sides of a dispute. But while it's obvious to me that structural separation is necessary, it's not obvious to me where the separation line should run. I know for sure that we can't trust tech giants to choose them, obviously. I mean, obviously. Like, we should absolutely ignore Google's transparent alphabet ruse, in which it spun out many of its divisions into separate companies and grouped them under a single umbrella company, in a bid to create pre-scored perforation lines that regulators could tear along when they finally come for the company. Even a cursory glance at Alphabet shows you that more or less all of the companies that make money are still called Google, while the other letters of the Alphabet are mostly taken up by Follies and also-rans, relatively infinitesimal companies that either make very little money or lose money, sometimes a lot of it. Alphabet is like a kid saying, okay, okay, punish me if you must, but please, whatever you do, don't deny me my delicious boiled liver or these nutritious Brussels sprouts. No dice, kid. We're taking away your ice cream. But, as The Economist Ramsey Woodcock has pointed out to me, you can't tell a company that it's not allowed to have any vertical integration. A company is vertical integration. That's its point. We accept that an accounting company might have its own receptionists and cleaners, even though accounting and cleaning and reception are not immediately related. Even in the case of a platform, there's no bright line between anti-competitive and pro-competitive integrations. Imagine that we tamed Amazon, made it a respecter of human rights and workers' rights and the climate and the rights of local businesses and communities. We'd still have a use for Amazon. How should it be separated? Some calls are easy. Split off Prime Studios and the publishing arms, which compete with Amazon's business customers. Same for Amazon's in-house clothing, furniture, and other products. But what about warehouse automation and fulfillment? 
These clearly offer a significant competitive advantage as a platform operator and make it harder for other companies to compete to offer platform services. What's more, Amazon could use its warehouses to self-preference. In fact, it already does, penalizing platform sellers who choose to warehouse and fulfill their own products rather than paying Amazon to do this for them. Sure, Amazon might say it gives preferential search results to businesses that use its warehouses because it can be sure that those items will be delivered more efficiently and reliably, but it also benefits every time it makes that call. It's the referee, and it's playing the game. This is a thorny problem to be sure. The bright line cases are easy enough to lay out, but these liminal cases multiply the more you think about them, and I haven't seen any convincing explanation of how we deal with them. If I were playing for big tech, this is the fracture line I'd drive my wedge into. But big tech doesn't want to go anywhere near that line because the last thing big tech companies want to do is get us thinking too hard about which parts of their businesses they own and which parts they outsource. Facebook says it has to gobble up virtually every VR company or it can't build the metaverse. But it also says that it's inconceivable that it could operate its own moderation shop and that it's only natural, inevitable really, that moderation be outsourced to traumatized low-wage subcontractors who do a terrible job. Amazon says it has to buy up every part of its supply chain, but also that its drivers and warehouse workers must be procured through staffing agencies it decidedly does not own. Apple can buy 90 companies a year, but also can't figure out how to own the factories where its phones are made, which would allow it to decisively prevent slave labor in their production. In general, tech companies want us to think that it's literally impossible for them to be vertically integrated with the parts of their businesses that impose costs on the rest of us, the divisions that pollute or maim workers or oversee fraud. At the same time, they insist that it's impossible for them not to be vertically integrated with the parts of their supply chain that prevent competitors from emerging. Perhaps we don't just need a doctrine of structural separation, but also of structural integration. A requirement that the business functions that harm the rest of us when they go wrong be kept in-house, so that the liabilities from mismanaging those operations end up where they belong. All right, then. Have a good week. Enjoy your pie day. And tomorrow is also husband day, uh, 14th of March. I hope both of those go well for you to the extent that you like pie or husbands. And I will speak to you next week. And again, I hope that everything in your world is safe and good, especially if you are in a war zone where I hope that you are safe indeed. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.